Well, all of you know that at Brookstone Church, we believe that prayer is powerful. And because we believe in the power of prayer, we're committed to providing opportunities for our church family to spend time praying together. Uh, And to that end, this past Friday night and into Saturday morning, uh, we opened up the worship center here at, uh, at the Weaverville campus for an all-night prayer meeting, 11 hours, beginning at 8 o'clock and going through 7 o'clock on Saturday morning. Uh, there were 11 hours of constant prayer happening. There were hundreds of people who prayed on Friday night for uh, uh, hundreds of different requests, many of those praying here in the worship center Uh, Many more praying at home, joining us online, tuning in online during the night, and joining us as we prayed together. And so if you participated in that on Friday night, thank you for being uh, uh, mindful and and being one of those prayer warriors. But in the spirit of prayer that kind of permeated this room on Friday night, um, I'd like for us to do something today that we we don't do on a normal basis or a regular basis, and that is that I want us to recite out loud together the Lord's Prayer, or more appropriately called the Model Prayer. Now, would you do me a favor? I know you've just gotten seated a few minutes ago and you're comfortable in your seat, but I'd love for you to stand on both campuses and uh, let's say this out loud together because you'll, you'll say it with greater conviction uh, if, you're, if you're standing. Would you recite it with me on both campuses? Let's pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for doing that sounded beautiful. Now, we all know this as the Lord's Prayer. I mentioned a moment ago, it's probably more correctly known as the model prayer. And we call it the model prayer because these words uttered by Jesus in response to his disciples asking that he would teach them to pray, this prayer serves for us as a form by which we should pray. It's not intended all the time to be recited as we just recited it. Nothing wrong with doing that, but that's not the purpose of the prayer. It's not a recitation, but rather it is a recipe of how we ought to pray. If you think about it, when you begin a prayer by saying, Our Father, you are automatically entering into an understanding of an intimate relationship with God. He is not a distant deity. He is... In fact, our Father, it speaks of intimacy. Our Father which art in heaven, it speaks of majesty, the exalted position. He is seated in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. It brings to mind his holiness and the call of holiness that he has placed upon our lives. Thy will be done in the earth as surely as your will is done in heaven. It's a prayer of surrender. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Give us day by day our daily bread. There's petition, intercession, where we go before the Lord and make our requests and needs known to him. 
Forgive us our debts. It's a prayer of repentance. Lead us not into temptation. It's an expression of faith that we are dependent upon you as we walk through life. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. It's a prayer of worship. So do you see the form of it? Not a recitation, but a recipe. This is how my prayers should flow uh, as I understand who God is in my relationship with him. Now, we put it on the screen so that we would say it exactly the same together. There are several places in the scriptures where the prayer is recorded with different uh, uh, words here and there. And then, of course, you might say a word or two differently along the way. But we wanted all of us to recite this prayer together because it's classic and we all love it. But what we sometimes never notice in praying this prayer What we sometimes read past without really taking note of the significance of it is that in this prayer, which is filled with praises and petitions, there is one, a singular stipulation. Did you notice it in the prayer? There is a caveat to one of the requests. It's in this line, Forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. Here's the caveat. As we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It is recorded in the book of Luke. Here's the truth. Jesus instructed us. He invited us to pray For forgiveness to the extent to which we are willing to forgive others. If y'all are still with me, say amen. Amen. You say, Pastor, it can't really mean that, right? I mean, God's not really, really holding that stipulation over my head, is he? Does he really mean that I can only be forgiven to the extent to which I am willing to forgive? Well, if you struggle with that just a little bit, if you're not absolutely certain that that's what he means, don't stop reading at Matthew 6 and verse 13, which is what we were just reciting. Let me show you what he goes on to say in verse number 14 and 15. Jesus says these words, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, everybody say the word but. But, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Everybody look at your neighbor, look at them and say, wow. Tell them, wow. That's a wow, isn't it? But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Let me welcome you to the fifth and final week of this little series, Five to Survive. And over these weeks, as you know, we've been considering five of the most important commands that the Lord has given us. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but four of the five are found recorded in the book of Matthew. Might be a good reminder for us to go read and reread the book of Matthew. Four we've considered so far. Today we'll come to the fifth one. Let me remind you of what they are. We began by learning that God has commanded us to be compassionate to the weak around us, especially widows and orphans. We ought to show compassion to them. Number two, that we ought to live a life in worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
that we ought to live by the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, we learned that we cannot serve God in money. The command is do not serve money. Today is number five. Write it down. Today, we're going to talk about this command. Forgive those who sin against you. Forgive those who sin against you. You have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter number 18. May we with uh, trembling feet walk into this passage and this truth. Matthew uh, 18, I should say, verse number 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall still neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, then let him be counted unto thee as a heathen and a publican. For truly I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I'll say it this way, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Well, then Peter came to him in the midst of this teaching And asked, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times seems rather magnanimous, doesn't it? How many times shall my brother sin against me and I offer him forgiveness? Would seven times be sufficient? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times Seven. Now, I was never very good at math, but 70 times 7 equates to 490 times, which means that on 491, punch him in the nose. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. The point, obviously, is that there is no end. It is an endless forgiveness. Until 70 times 7. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened. Now, in verse number 23, Jesus launches into a parable to illustrate this truth. Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon with them, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents of gold. You just need to know it is millions and millions of dollars. It is an unpayable debt. Verse 25, but for as much as he had no ability to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold into slavery and his wife to be sold into slavery and his children to be sold into slavery and all that he had and the payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and begged him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt completely. But the same servant then went out 
And he found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence, a few bucks. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Verse 30, but he would not. But he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and upset and angry. And they came and told the master what had been happening. Verse 32, then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debt because you desired of me. You asked me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was angry, and he delivered him unto the tormentors, or the jailers, till he should pay all that was due unto him. Parable ends, here's the application in verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts do not forgive everyone his brother of their trespasses. This passage affirms an old English proverb that most of us are familiar with. It goes something like this, to err is human. Do you know the rest of it? To forgive is divine. To err is human and to forgive is divine. Now, certainly this passage affirms that to err is human because one thing that becomes clear in both the teaching and in the parable that Jesus follows the teaching with is that in all of our relationships, in a world filled with broken people, there is a certainty that offenses will come. We are going to disappoint one another. We are going to sin against one another. We are going to violate one another. There is a certainty of offenses. In verse number 15, when Jesus says, moreover, if your brother trespasses, it doesn't really mean, you know, if it happens one day, probably won't, but if it does. No, the word actually means since or when. When your brother trespasses against you, it is surely going to happen. And the word trespass means when he sins against you or when someone commits a wrong against you. We all know that this happens. We all also know that for sins or trespasses to be committed against us by someone else or for our committing trespasses against others, this is not a rare occasion. In fact, Peter asks the question in verse number 21, how often shall this happen to me and I continue to give forgiveness? That question emphasizes the point that we are all repeat offenders. We are sinned against repeatedly, often in the same ways, by the same people. And then we commit those kinds of same sins against others as well. The point is that we're all sinners. But the passage is not emphasizing the fact that we are all good sinners. We know that. What the passage is saying is that we should all be good forgivers. Can I ask you a question? Are you a good forgiver? Or does your forgiver need a tune-up? You know, somebody has said that the, uh, a good marriage is 
the union of two good forgivers. A good marriage isn't necessarily because you have two really good people who are entering into that marriage, but you have two people who know how to forgive one another. And if that's true of a marriage, it's certainly true of every relationship, the, the, the family as a whole, not just husband and wife, but the kids and the siblings and the extended family. The definition of a good family is not the perfect family. That family doesn't exist. But the definition of a good family is a family where we're all good forgivers. The definition of a good friendship is the union of two friends who are both good forgivers. The definition of a good workplace is where when we work together, we're good at forgiving one another, on and on and on. The definition of a good church family is a church family where in the body of Christ, we know how to forgive one another. The point of the passage is we need to learn to be good forgivers. Now, to forgive simply means, if you, were to, if you were to look at the original word that's translated forgive throughout the New Testament, it's a word which means to let go. So rather than clinging to a wrong, I let it go. The word means to get rid of or to send away or to release it. So it can be gone. As in releasing a debt. This is the reason that when Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer, he didn't just say forgive us our sins. He said forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. See, when, when we sin against God, or for that matter, when we sin against another person, a debt is created. When I sin against you, I owe you. You would say, I owe you an apology. I owe you restoration. I owe you repentance and not doing it again. When someone sins against another, a debt is created. So the word to forgive means that I release the debt. Forgive us our debts that we've created in our relationship with you, God, as we forgive those who have indebted themselves to us in the ways that they have treated us. And so if the debt is created by the wrongdoing, as long as there is no forgiveness, then the offended one holds that debt close. They hold title to that debt, and they can call it due at any time. They can bring it up at any time. They can bang it over your head at any time. They can persecute you at any time because they're holding on to the debt. To forgive means to give away the debt. To forgive means that I let it go. I, I, I release it. Have you ever been in an argument where uh, the person that you're in an argument with, let's say it's your spouse, and, uh, and, and you're arguing about something that's happening right now, and in the midst of the discussion, the heated discussion about what just happened, somehow, you don't even know how it happened, something that happened six years ago comes up again, and now we're talking about it. Uh, can I get a witness that's ever happened? And have you ever said, can you just let it go? What you're asking is, can you just forgive me? Can you just forget that, or not forget it in your mind, but let it go so that you do not hold it against me? Here's the definition, write it down. To forgive is to give up our right. Doesn't mean we don't have the right, but we release the right to hold a person responsible for their actions against us. That's the definition. That's biblical forgiveness. 
To forgive is to give up our right to hold a person responsible for their actions against us. Now, before we go any further, I want, you to, I want you to process that a little bit and not just see it as a theological truth, a Sunday morning sermon point, but I want you to let it, let it invade your life a little bit. So think about who is or who are the, the people or the person who has offended you in some way, someone who has hurt you, maybe very recently, maybe very long ago, and what would it look like for you in that situation and with regard to that person to give up the right that you have been holding to hold that against them. Now, even as you're thinking about that, let me confess that I am a co-struggler with you in this regard. And so I do not stand here today and, and impose upon you a biblical truth which I would not admit readily that I wrestle with as well. And I also want to say to you that I get that forgiveness like this is rarely easy. Sometimes it's simple, but it's not easy. Other times it's complex. The circumstances, the actions, the behaviors, the attitudes, the motivations create this complex sort of, you have to almost tease apart all of the pain associated with it, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not a simple thing. Sometimes somebody picks up a brick, hits you in the side of the head. It's not easy to forgive, but it's simple. They just hit you in the head. It's just, it's, you, you know what you need to do. You need to forgive. Other times it's years and years, maybe decades of stuff. And it's very, very complex. You know, sometimes forgiveness is as simple as a mother separating two fighting brothers. Or a teacher separating two fighting kids on the playground or fighting over a toy or whatever. And, and forgiveness can be as simple as saying, now you two shake hands and make up. I want you to forgive one another. And they do. And it's over. It's that simple sometimes. Other times it's much more difficult than that. Sometimes it's like the experience that maybe you've read about the experience of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom, as many of you know, is the author of a book called The Hiding Place, in which she tells the story of her family in World War II Holland. When the Nazis invaded Holland, her family was not Jewish, but her family, a Dutch family, began to take in Jews and hide them in secret places in their home to protect them from the Nazi slaughter. And eventually they were discovered and along with the Jews, uh, the Ten Boom family was sent to concentration camps. Uh, Corey and her sister Betsy were placed in one particular death camp where her sister Betsy was not only abused horribly as she was, but ultimately Betsy didn't leave the concentration camp. She, uh, she died, she succumbed there. In 1947, two years after the end of World War II, um, Corey Ten Boom had gone back to Munich where she was speaking in post-Nazi Germany, speaking to Germans and to others who had been abused by the Germans about this topic of forgiveness. And she was expressing to them the biblical idea of how do you forgive these who have sinned against you so horribly. 
When she finished her talk, she was greeting people in the room as they came by, filing by and shaking her hand. And she shook one person's hand and then she turned and found herself without knowing it. Immediately she realized she was face to face looking into the eyes of one of the guards at the concentration camp where she and Betsy had been held. She suddenly was face to face with the abuser, the murderer, and the one who had been, or one of the ones who had been responsible for Betsy's death. And he stuck his hand out and he said, Fräulein, isn't it good that God can forgive us of all of our sins? And I'm asking you, will you forgive me as well? Corey told the story that she, it was like her arm froze. It, it, it was, she said probably only a few seconds, but it seemed like an eternity. She thought, I, how do I shake the hand of this man and extend forgiveness? And she said in that moment, it was like a choice in my will, not driven by emotion, but by obedience to God, said, I can lift my hand and trust God for the emotion. And she took his hand and said, my brother, I forgive you. And her testimony was that in the moment that they clasped hands, the love of God flows from her heart down her arm and into that joined hand with this man who had abused her so horribly. I don't tell that story to say that that is easy. I tell it to say that it is difficult. And yet, that is what God calls us to. We all know there are varying degrees of offense. You, know, you, you may be in a marriage where one spouse is simply inconsiderate. That requires forgiveness. But another spouse may be in a marriage where someone commits infidelity. A much deeper degree of offense. One husband speaks harshly and with a bad temper to his wife. Another commits domestic violence and abuses his wife. One woman may be rejected while another woman is raped. One person steals a child's money. Another person steals a different child's innocence. You see, the fact is, while there are countless offenses and varying degrees of ways in which we can be sinned against. The point of the passage, the message of Jesus, and in fact the purpose of the gospel is that we would hear the singular command in a world of multiple offenses, we would hear the singular command that we have received. And the command is forgive. Forgive. Ephesians 4 and verse 32 says it this way, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, same truth, different book. Bear with each other and forgive any complaint you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. These are the words of our Lord. And so the question is, how do we do this? Why should we do this? And both of, both of those verses allude to the first point I want you to really settle in on with me. Let's answer the question, why do we forgive? Jot that down, why we forgive. In other words, what's the motivation? 
that ought to drive our willingness to forgive those who sin against us. Stephen Diamond, uh, in an article recorded in Psychology Today, wrote this. He said, we must, here's our motivation, we must forgive others so that the hurt that they inflicted upon us does not grow into bitterness. This is what psychologists say, that if you harbor unforgiveness, it will eat away at you. It's like a poison in your soul, and it will turn into bitterness. Therefore, you should forgive so that you don't become bitter. Well, that's not an invalid reason to forgive, but that's not the motivation that Jesus gives. The parable that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter number 18 points to another reason, a more important motivation as to why we should forgive. Look at it again. Verse number 25 and 26 tells the story of this debtor who owed the king more money than he could pay in 10 lifetimes. Verse 24 says 10,000 talents of gold, millions and millions of dollars. Verse 25, but for as much as he had no way to pay, His Lord said, you're going to be sold. Everything that you have will be sold to settle the debt. I'm going to foreclose, not just on your property, but on your family and on your life. Number 26, the servant fell down and begged him, worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Here's the point. Jesus said, there was a man who owed the king more money than he could ever pay. It was an absolutely unpayable debt. And in the same way, you and I owe to Almighty God an unpayable debt. It's the reason I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. It's the reason I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord because he paid the debt that I could never pay. We have this unpayable debt. And yet, verse 27, verse 32, verse 33, tell us, That like this servant, we have been forgiven by this God. Look at verse number 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. And he loosed him. He forgave him the debt. He released his claim on the debt. And he set him free. He let the debt go. This is the motivation of why we forgive. Not simply so that we won't become bitter, but we are motivated by the mercy which we have received from Almighty God. He has forgiven me, therefore I should be motivated to forgive those who have sinned against me. In fact, it's interesting when you read on down to the end of the parable, it says that this this forgiven one refused to then forgive the, the small debt that was owed to him by one of his fellow servants, and he threw him into prison. And when the king got word of his actions, he brought him back in, in verse number 32, and he said, hey, I forgave you of a debt you could never pay. Should you not also have forgiven the debt that was owed to you? And because he had refused to do so, verse 34 says his Lord was angry. He reimposed that debt and delivered this unforgiving man, the King James says, to the tormentors. It means the jailers. He was put in prison and he was bound up and he wallowed in bitterness in a cold prison. Did he become bitter because of his unforgiveness? Yes. But the, the bitterness was not the, or the absence or the rejection or the resistance against bitterness was not the motivation for forgiving. It was the consequence of refusing to forgive. 
I shouldn't be motivated to forgive so I won't be bitter. I should know that if I refuse to forgive, I will become tormented and I will become bitter. And it might be that if you are full of bitterness today, you could trace it to that root of bitterness which is found in an unforgiving heart. When we refuse to forgive, our unwillingness uh, reveals a heart that has been hardened toward the forgiveness that we've received. So why do we do it? We do it because we've been forgiven. Secondly, how we forgive. What does it look like? We know the definition to forgive is to release or to let go or to send away, to give up our right to hold someone responsible for how they have sinned against us. But how is it, what do we do in order to make that become a reality? Now, by the way, when we talk about the, the question of how, we're highlighting this difference between what I would call therapeutic or internal forgiveness, private forgiveness of someone in my heart, and then a more biblical approach to forgiveness, which is a proactive kind of forgiveness. In 1984, a guy by the name of Lewis Smeeds wrote a book called Forgive and Forget, which, by the way, forgetting is not a biblical command. Forgiving is. You'll never forget it, but we forgive it. By the way, God has not forgotten your sin. And by that, I mean, I know the Bible says that he puts it as far as east from the west. He remembers it no more. The Bible doesn't say he forgets it. He's not having a mind slip. He has chosen not to bring it up. That's what it means when he doesn't remember it. And so in the same way, we may never forget the sin that has been committed against us, but we do have the ability to choose to not to bring it up. Well, in this book, Forgive and Forget, Smeeds said that forgiveness is ceasing to feel resentment over or anger over an offense. He called it being healed of your hate. But remember, we've learned that forgiveness is more than a feeling. It's more than my just privately saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to feel that way anymore. Forgiveness is transactional. Forgiveness ultimately in best cases, while it's not always possible, but in best cases, forgiveness should move toward reconciliation. And so how is it that we forgive in such a transactional way? Well, go back up to verse number 15, 16, 17, really verses 15 through 20. Notice what he says in verse 15. Moreover, when your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Watch this. If y'all are listening, both campuses, shout amen. amen. Watch this. Biblical forgiveness restores or regains what was lost. In the offense, you lost your brother. But in the forgiveness, the transactional extension of forgiveness... You are, if that forgiveness is operative, if he receives it and you offer it, then you gain, you regain the brother that you've lost. It is is transactional. It restores, uh, in best cases, what has been lost. Well, he says it's possible, though, verse number 16, that he's not going to hear you. He doesn't think he needs to repent. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong to you. Or maybe he just doesn't care. If he will not hear thee, then take two or three witnesses with you so that the, every word can be established. If he won't hear them, then tell it to the church and let the church weigh in on it. Now, by the way, these verses, verses uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, where Jesus talks about the church, by the way, of course, 
This is Matthew 18. It's before the institution of the church in Acts chapter 2. So he would be referring to the gathering, in this case, of the synagogue. Later, it would be the church. But he's simply saying, bring it to your faith community, to your local community. Let them weigh in on it. Here's the truth. Christ has given to his church jurisdiction, authority, to weigh in on matters of dispute and forgiveness. If y'all are listening, say amen. You know, we live in an age when people believe, here's the way church functions. I go to church. Church doesn't uh, have uh, uh, authority to speak into my life. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're not, your, you're not an independent agent who live as you want to and then show up at church periodically. Jesus says the church has authority to speak into the lives of believers. He said, when you have someone where there's a refusal to have repentance and forgiveness extended, then the church has the ability to weigh into that. They can either, they can either release it, let it go. They can either hold it close until there is repentance. They can loose it, as he goes on to say, or bind it or loose it. Well, the point is that when my brother, someone I'm in relationship with, when my spouse, when my family member, when someone that I'm in relationship with sins against me, there is a mechanism for restoring that fellowship. How do we do it? How do we forgive a brother or sister? Write this down. Number one, we engage in humble conversation. I want you to write it down and think about it. We engage in humble conversation. What do you usually do when someone sins against you? We pull away. We close up. Fold our arms. We don't talk about it. Or at least we don't talk about it to them. We talk about it to others. That's called gossip. And it's divisive and it's sowing discord. He says if your brother, if your husband, if your wife, if your sibling, whomever, someone your relationship with sins against you, Here's what you do. You engage in humble conversation. Now, some of you think, well, not in our family, preacher. Well, Pastor, we don't do that in our family. I mean, we, we come from a long line of, of no talkers. <laughs> we just sweep it under the rug. We just bury it. And eventually, here's what, you know, there's not a hole under that rug, right? You know that. So if you sweep it under the rug, it's not going down into the floor and disappearing and going into the center of the earth and being burned up in the magma. And you, and, no, it's going to pile up under the rug. That's why every time somebody walks through the living room, you can't look at them without them tripping over the offenses that are piled up under the rug. We talk about it. We talk about it with humility. We, we have a conversation. And by the way, if you're not a good talker, if you're not a good listener, then you will not be a good forgiver. Because those who learn to forgive are those who are willing to have conversation about the offense. Secondly, we extend the compassion of Jesus to them. When someone sins against us, we are honest with them about that offense, and then we extend compassion. Verse number 27, the servant was moved, or the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion. We've received compassion. Therefore, we extend that compassion to another. So I'm in a marriage, I'm in a friendship, I'm, I have a church family member, I have a coworker. These people I'm in a relationship with, they've done things about me, they've said things about me, they've harmed me, they've done wrong things. What do I do? If you've been forgiven by Jesus, here's what you do. You try to have a conversation. If I hear you, you gain your brother, you extend the compassion of Jesus. The same compassion you've gotten, you give to them. 
Now that brings up a couple of questions. One question is, what if they don't repent? Like what if they're like, shut up, get out of here. I don't want to talk about it. I haven't done anything to you. You're making that up or what? I never did that. That happens all the time, doesn't it? So what if they refuse to repent? Another question might be, what if we don't have a relationship with them? It's, it's not like I can go and have a conversation with them. I mean, this would be the case in um, a, a divorce situation. Uh, maybe in an abuse situation where there's domestic violence and, and that spouse has had to remove themselves for, for safety and they should do that um, uh, to, to protect their own life, their own well-being. And there's not a relationship. So how, how do I deal with forgiveness then? This would be the case in a crime. Maybe uh, someone you don't know, it's a stranger, they've, they've robbed from your home or they've violated you or some occurrence that happened years ago. Maybe it's a, someone who's dead now and you were violated in some way as a child and now that person's not even alive anymore. What do you do? How do you extend forgiveness to someone who you can't talk to? Because either they won't talk or they won't repent or they are no longer in your life. We would all agree that in that situation, you can't go to them, Matthew 18, have a conversation and hope that it can be reconciled. So I would say that in such a case, we are guided by the motivation that we have been forgiven. We still should have an attitude of forgiveness, but we're guided by the instruction of Paul in Romans 12. I want you to turn there quickly and we'll close. Go to Romans 12, listen to Paul's instructions. Look in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse number 17. So Paul writes these words. Recompense no man evil for evil. All right, so here's the first thing. Write it down. What do I do if I, if I can't talk to, I don't have a relationship with this person who sinned against me? Number one, do not return evil for evil. Don't do to them what they've done to you. Don't pay back. That's what Paul would say. Do not recompense evil for evil. Number two, verse 18, if it be possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Number two, choose peace. Choose peace. And then number three, you'll find it in verse number 19, dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't take revenge, but rather, instead of taking revenge yourself, give room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the third thing, leave room for God's wrath. So someone has sinned against me, I'm not in a relationship with them anymore, I've had to separate from them, I, there's, there's no going back, it was a, maybe a divorce from years ago, we've all remarried, there's, it's not like we're going to go back and reconcile, what do I do? Or that person who, who violated me years ago, they're no longer in my life, maybe they've died, what do I do? choose that you will not try to return evil for evil. You will choose as much as this lies within you, as much as possible. Your goal is going to choose peace, and then you leave it to God. Leave room for the wrath of God. Do you agree with me? God will make all things right on the day of judgment. One of my favorite verses is in the New Testament Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. I will set all things right. So we leave room for God's wrath. 
Now, if I refuse to do evil and I try to choose peace and I leave room for God to execute judgment on them, is that in fact extending forgiveness to them? Well, I would suggest to you that you can have an attitude of forgiveness, but forgiveness is transactional. You can't actually give forgiveness to the person who does not receive it, who does not ask for it. That doesn't mean you don't have a heart to forgive. It doesn't mean you're bitter, but it means that you hold ready an attitude of forgiveness and that should the opportunity ever present itself, you will in that moment give what you're ready to give. Our greatest example of this is Joseph in Genesis 45, who was so betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, told his daddy he had been killed. He rises to power in Egypt, and 22 years after they sell him into into, uh, slavery, he's the vice regent in all the land of Egypt, and his brothers are standing before him, and they don't recognize him, but he knows them. And if you follow that story from about Genesis 39 to Genesis 45, he is ready to forgive them, He doesn't have the opportunity to do it until finally they stand in front of him and they say, we have done wrong. And he breaks down weeping and says, come. And he hugs them and forgives them because finally the opportunity presented itself. But had he not had the attitude of forgiveness, it would have been off with their heads. And rightly so. But not as a follower of God. Because we should, Joseph should, and we should offer forgiveness. Now, the Bible tells us in verses 21 and 22 back in Matthew 18 that when we offer this forgiveness, that we are to offer it by God's grace endlessly. I love Peter's question. How often should I do this? I mean, you want me to forgive. You know, one time's on you. you, Okay, I'll forgive you. Second time, that's on me. Third time, I'm not a fool. Peter says, well, what if I give them seven times? Oh, Peter, you're so gracious. Seven times, how would that be? God's perfect number, seven. And Jesus says, not seven, endlessly. Seventy times seven. Here's the point. It is that our attitude is to be one of forgiveness because we live in a world where sin and wrongs are going to continue to happen. Can I give you some news that might not be the best news you've heard today, but you are going to encounter offenses until the day that you close your eyes in death. And if you go through life with your your fists up, you cross me, you hit me, I'll hit you back. You do me wrong, I'll do you wrong. I'm ready to fight any moment. You you are going to live an unredemptive, unforgiving, bitter life. But if you will say, by the grace of God, I've received incredible mercy and I'm going to offer that as I can to everybody that sins against me, then you will find the grace of God washing over your life. Amen? May God give us grace to obey the command, forgive those who sin against you. Let's pray together.